Hi, I'm Matt Brown, a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and the founder of Global Progress. Welcome to the Recovery Project podcast. The Recovery Project is a broad coalition focused on marshalling resources to look ahead from the COVID-19 pandemic and consider how we can leverage a period of recovery to build stronger economies, institutions, and societies through better policy. As we look towards recovery from COVID-19, it's critical to consider how coming out of social distancing will influence our thinking about data privacy, security, surveillance, and our online identities. How will the new economy of data impact the power balance between and among tech companies and our democratic systems? To unpack some of these issues, I'm joined by Ben Scott, Executive Director of Reset Tech, a new initiative of Luminate, Dawn Nakagawa, the Executive Vice President of the Baguren Institute and Co-Director of the Future of Democracy program there, and Adrian Abacasse, Fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and Co-Founder of the Frontiers of Tech Governance Initiative. Thank you all for joining me. It's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. I want to begin by setting the larger context for our listeners. Why we are thinking and talking about democracy in the midst of a global economic crisis and global health pandemic. I'm going to turn to you first, Dawn. You recently co-directed a long-running project on the future of democracy in the digital age. Talk to us about what you think is at stake today. Well, thank you, Matt, for having me on the podcast. Um, and it's it's a really important question. I think we've um, entered a moment where democracy was already being challenged. Um, its legitimacy was being questioned. Um, and its credibility, I think, was at a low ebb as a result of sort of decades of not fulfilling its promise in, in many different Western democratic nations. And as a result, we were already seeing the rise of populism, a lot of social anxiety and political unrest, deep polarization. Um, and, and all of these factors were making the system itself sort of rigid and, and less capable and less resilient. So we were already in a position where where democracy wasn't faring so well. Um, and into this moment uh, comes this monumental sort of global calamity uh, of the pandemic. And democracies are really struggling to manage it. And it's, it's unclear whether they're doing a good job or not. We're still sort of too early, I think, in the process um, and evolution of the pandemic to really know. Um, but there will be, I think, uh, a few things that that I that that come to the fore in this moment. One is that uh, authoritarianism, which was already on the rise, is going to find new tools um, uh, for their craft, and uh, those include, you know, um, declaring states of emergency, applying mass surveillance, uh, doing things that are quite invasive to people's privacy, and suppressing their civil liberties in the name of managing the plague, which nations have always done. Um, historically, they've always granted massive executive <laughs> powers uh, and pervasive powers to, um, you know, public administrators who are who are charged with managing uh, plagues and pandemics. So the president's already there, um, and so we're giving them tools to uh, to, as I said, perfect their craft. Um, and at the same time, I think there's going to be a global sort of. Um, comparison between whether states that are more authoritarian and autocratic are better equipped to manage crises that are this urgent <clears throat> and this uh, and at this scale. Um, and and there will be arguments to be made because 
democracy is messy and deliberative and needs to be thoughtful about the suppression of civil liberties and taking severe action, even in these moments, in a way that autocratic states do not. Uh, they're unencumbered by. And I think the comparison will not necessarily uh, look favorably on how democracies did. But they do those things, hopefully, in the name of preserving the values that they hold dear and that are the essence of uh, the system itself. So there's an awful lot at stake in the moment that we're in. Um, and I think how we how we emerge from this really will determine um, the prospects for democracy for, for generations. Dawn, uh, thank you for that. Adrienne, uh, I'd like to turn to you now, if I may. You recently wrote an article in Foreign Affairs that looked at some of these big picture democracy uh, challenges. But you, you've also had experience at the heart of government working as a, a special advisor to Francois Hollande. Um, what do you see as the, the big issues at stake for democracy in, in the current context? Well, thank you, Matt. I, I will echo what Don said, that we, um, we will have economic devastation, we will have a collapse of public health, we'll have legitimacy and policy crisis. And we'll have to go through that for at least 10, 12 to, to 18 months. And this is just the beginning, the worst to come. Democracies have probably never entered a crisis of that magnitude while being so um, weakened. It, it's not clear that the, the crisis is changing anyone's mind. On the contrary, I think it's just reinforced everyone's pre-existing uh, positions or, or prejudice. Nationalists are coming more nationalist. And, uh, progressives are becoming more progressive, but that means that we should brace for um, increased polarization, political tension, uh, even, even bitter debate, if that's possible. Um, and then there is this whole issue of the battle of um, a narrative that is already engaged when when there will be a comparison between the death toll, the economic impact, and so on. There will the narrative on which um, um, model manage the crisis better will heavily influence domestic and international policies. We should also prepare for a bitter battle of spin. So. All this is not really rejoicing, but there is a really important stakes here. Thanks, Adrian. Um, ben, I'll turn to you now to answer the same question, if I may. And I, uh, you know, Adrian mentioned right at the end of uh, his comments the the notion of a bitter battle of spin about um, about what is uh, the interpretation of of which systems of governance have fared better during this crisis. So, you know, obviously I would like you to answer the broader question, but I wonder if you'd like to address a little bit about the, that battle of spin and, and what the influence of fake news and disinformation might be in that battle. Absolutely. One of the most visible displays of online disinformation warfare that we have seen outside of the context of an election and the fact going over into the geopolitics of a pandemic shows you how critical the politics of information warfare have become in, in this day and age. It's become almost axiomatic that fake news is, is a part of our, our modern popular politics. But I think you know the coronavirus disinformation wave has alerted people to this issue in a way that nothing before has. That's partly because of the volume of disinformation that's around the internet on, on coronavirus, but also because people are sat in their house and they are consuming large amounts of social media, panic-consuming social media, if I can put it that way, 
and, and are exposed to much more of it than they otherwise might be. So you're seeing both the organized efforts by state actors and by business interests and political interests, all of whom are eager to get put their mark on how to interpret the coronavirus, how to interpret their their state's response to it, why this country has done better, why that country has done better, why this system of governance is better in the time of crisis, or that system of governance is better. But what we're seeing is is a a society globally that's come unmoored from any common set of facts and any common fora to really interpret what's going on in the world in an objective way. You know, the the, the disinvestment in public service journalism across the world. The chickens are coming home to roost there, and we're finally realizing what it means to be in a relativized media market where one person's truth is another person's fiction and polarization and social media filter bubbles are the order of the day. So I think we're going to really, if if we're going to solve these grand challenges, if we're going to figure out how uh, to make democracy resilient in a time of crisis like this, dealing with these information market problems, the disinformation and fake news problem is going to be uh, right up at the top of the list. So Ben, like, I, I agree with you on uh, on your analysis. And, and if I may, I'd like to come back um, and, and dig down a little bit into the details of this. So, you know, I read uh, recently an article by Alex Demos, who, uh, for those listeners who aren't aware, was the head of privacy, I believe, for Facebook. Uh, one of the suggestions that he came up with was that uh, officials from uh, hostile powers uh, that uh, censor particular platforms in their own country should not be given uh, access to uh, to platforms in, in democracies. Um, another idea that has emerged is the idea of a duty of care to tackle fake news. Um, if we are, uh, and the duty of care obviously says that social media companies would have a duty to make sure that predictable harms, uh, uh, as as defined by by governments or societies, should be protected against by the platforms themselves. Um, I wonder whether you could talk a little bit about how you know if if this information warfare battle is crucial. Uh, what are the policy tools we have available to us? Those are interesting proposals from from Alex Demos, and it's a bit ironic to hear them coming from a former Facebooker. Although good on him for being uh, uh, for atoning for the sins of the past, uh, you know, these companies, Facebook and Google in particular, have created global information distribution behemoths unlike anything the world has ever seen, and their primary purpose is selling advertising which means what they really need to do is they need to facilitate the frictionless flow of information to capture the maximum amount of audience attention possible to sell ads. And in that context, sensational information, outrageous information, conspiratorial information, fear-mongering information, well, that plays really well. That gets a lot of audience attention, and, and therefore the algorithms that give us search results, the algorithms that choose our YouTube videos, the algorithms that decide what we see on Facebook and Twitter, they feed us a disproportionate share of that kind of content because it's eye candy. It captures our attention, which is what advertisers want. Finding ways to put friction back into the system, finding ways to decide, you know what, it's not in the public interest 
to let organized deceptive propaganda exploit a system that privileges the outrageous over the factual, that privileges the sensational over the credible. We need to re-engineer the way these products work in order to rebalance the scales between corporate profit and public service. That is absolutely the right motive. That is the spirit of the of the UK's duty of care idea. There are lots of governments, including the European Union and its institutions in Brussels, who are looking at this problem very carefully, trying to figure out how to go about it. But I think we need to be clear that what we're looking for here is not a cosmetic solution where a few bad actors who've got conspiracy theories on YouTube get deleted from the platform. This is fundamental change to the way we think about digital information distribution. And it's going to mean uh, a, a, a change in the relationship between citizens, government, and big media platforms. Thank you, Ben. Um, Dawn, uh, the, the task force and the, the report that the Bergeron Institute uh, has, has published recently, the, the idea of a duty of care was one of the recommendations that, that, came, that, uh, that was endorsed, certainly, and, and, and partly came out of, of that work. Um, maybe you could share a little bit of thinking about how your group's work looked at the issue of the public square, its importance in democracy, and what could be done to make sure that the digital space was a positive one. Yeah. Um, so the work that we undertook started in late 2015, where we started to see um, that what was happening online and the way people were behaving online um, and were was going to be quite disruptive to democratic norms. Um, and this was kind of an, an early edge, certainly to be talking to policymakers about the potential problems that we were seeing. We found a pretty unreceptive audience at that point. Most people were thinking of the platforms and social media as ways to get elected, um, great ways to reach audiences that um, and not having to be filtered through the media and so on. So they were catching on that there were you know these tools were powerful for their own uh, use. Um, but what we were seeing was toxic political dialogue and misinformation and, you know, all kinds of, um, uh, you know, a fragmented sort of uh, media reality um, and, and just generally a public square that wasn't functioning in support of democracy. Um, and as our, as our, um, our, our, I guess, investigation, exploration progressed, uh, we engaged a lot of policymakers that more and more were concerned about this. And of course, as of the beginning of 2017, in, you know, in retrospective of what had happened in the U.S. elections and with Brexit and so on, there was a new attention to what was going on online and how people were being manipulated. And so there was a much more receptive audience and we were able to gather people together to really think about what we needed to do. The initial thought and the initial approach was all about content moderation. It was all about fixing content, taking down bad content, proving to people that it was bad information that they were getting and so on. And a lot of the policy solutions were pretty, frankly, in my mind, club-footed. Club and any time the policymakers tried to go in with something quite prescriptive, um, of course, it, the technology itself is too sophisticated. It's too adaptable. It ch changes way too quickly. With that kind of, um, with those characteristics, prescriptive uh, solutions and legislative solutions are not going to function. So we came across the duty of care. It came up in our work, um, I'd say, sort of late in the process, frankly. And now the UK really has taken it up and, and they're spearheading what it could look like. Um, but it's quite elegant regulatory architecture. And what it does is it avoids policymakers trying to be, um, you know, uh, tech engineers, and um, because that's that's 
clearly proven impossible and actually just raises the accountability of the platforms to, you know, take on the responsibility that things that happen in this space are their responsibility. And so what it does is define for um, the platforms what the outcomes need to be as opposed to what the inputs need to do, right? So what, what the outcomes need to be, and, and it has to be reasonable, and there have to, you know, they have to have some definition of foreseeable harm. So, so there's a lot of, I think, finessing to be done to make it work for the platforms. But it's quite elegant because it raises the accountability, but it doesn't require that, uh, that our, our, um, uh, our policymakers are, are engineers, as I said. So I think it's, it's quite good, and I think it can be applied, and if applied uh, correctly, um, it could it could be quite powerful. And with that said, one of the conclusions that we came to uh, towards the end of this, and I do agree with Ben that we have to do everything in our power to try to fix what's happened in the public square. I have, um, unless uh, I have less faith that we're going to be able to do that effectively. It feels to me like, you know, if people can't get the kind of information that they already believe is true, I think, I think, so let me step back a bit. I think confirmation bias is an incredibly, incredibly powerful characteristic of our society now. And it's because we have this very fragmented um, uh, you know, fragmented media landscape and, and information ecosystem. And as a result, people can find what they already believe in. And uh, if they stop finding what they believe in, they're going to believe that they're being lied to and they're going to go seek it out anyway. So my concern is that, yes, I think we should do what we can to try to, you know, um, you know, reduce the ills of the public square. But I also think, and I deeply held belief, that we need to change our democratic institutions to be resilient in the face of a public square that's not going back to the way it was. Um, and we haven't done enough to think that through. Policymakers have spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, blaming the platforms and trying to figure out how they can hold them to account. They haven't spent enough time reflecting on the fact that de democracy itself needs to adapt to the 21st century. And this is a 21st century that's that's going to look more or less like this. Um, and we have to kind of accept that and, and build because of it. Thanks, Dawn. Uh, I'm hearing from you and Ben a couple of points. The first is that this is a, uh, a systemic problem about the way in which these platforms function, and that's we need to deal with that on a systemic basis uh, uh, and not necessarily worry about little bits of content and try and play whack-a-mole to knock down every bit of misinformation that we can because we won't be able to deal with that. Uh, and then secondly, that we need to think about the institutions of democracy themselves. I'd like to, to park that second point for the moment and, and maybe come back to that a little bit later on. Um, but for now, uh, I, I love your views, uh, Adrian. Do you see this as a systemic problem that's embedded in the business model of, of social media platforms themselves? And if so, what do you think we can do about this? This is a systemic problem, of course. The uh, misinformation about a virus can literally kill. So the stakes has never been higher. Now, and we are a moment that reminds us of the importance of uh, trust in expertise and information, and those are not uh, characteristic of the um, uh, social media. Um, also, what, what we'll be facing, because we'll be facing an enduring crisis where we will have very hard choices to, um, to do and ethical choices, in, uh, dilemmas. We have three fundamental goods, which are public health, the economy, and individual rights, which are conflicting and, and somehow mutually exclusive. 
so we cannot give up on this objective, but we're going to uh, uh, there are going to be trade off, um, and how to make a meaningful trade off like that in a democratic society that that should be deliberated. But for this, we need to achieve some kind of common understanding of the set of options we have, the consequences to be able to move forward without polarizing the society even more. And this is really the first crisis that democracy have to go through in the era of social media. So it would be a litmus test, and I totally agree with Don that this will probably uh, lead to a much deeper rethink on the democratic institution uh, themselves, and not only on the uh, uh, social media uh, sphere, which is the uh, uh, information part of the democracy. Um, but we, we, we need to, to uh, go way, way, beyond, way beyond this. So what are the solutions? I, I agree with what uh, Ben uh, Don said. This will touch to the core of the business model of this uh, platform. They, for now, they have the fundamental business model of keeping their user under ubiquitous surveillance and using the information learned for targeted uh, advertising and to favor the most uh, outrageous, controversial, and uh, sensational claim because this is what keeps users on the platform longer. And uh, as long as this exists, this would give a home to disinformation. Uh, if we don't like that, then we need to use the power of government to regulate, to force changes to their business uh, model. Thank you, Adrian. Dawn, you mentioned right at the end of your uh, last set of remarks the idea that the institutions of, uh, of democracy and governance need to change. And what's been striking to me is that where, when you look at those uh, democracies, those institutions of governance that have been successful in tackling this crisis, um, actually... There are many democracies that have been very good. Uh, you look at Taiwan, you look at South Korea, you look at Germany, for example. But a, a certain number of things or a certain number of values tend to underpin uh, the, those democracies and how they, they go about their affairs. One is they tend to be more transparent. A second issue is they tend to be more participative. Um, and I wondered if you could just reflect a little bit on that and say, you know, from those examples that you know, from democracies that are doing well in this crisis, uh, what is it that you think it is about the institutional design of those systems that, that works well and helps them create these successes? It's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, you're, you've pointed to a couple of them, right? Um, you know, for government to, I guess, be empowered to operate effectively, I think there have to be a few characteristics of the system uh, and perhaps a, a few characteristics of the society um, uh, that, that enable, uh, I guess, the democracy to be resilient. I would start probably with the sense of social cohesion and solidarity. One of the things that we were seeing in a lot of Western democracies, I think particularly in the U.S., but also in uh, U.K. post the Brexit vote and so on, was deep divisions in society. And without a sense of social solidarity, without a sense of belonging together, somehow, um, the kind of trade-offs and, and sort of, you know, negotiated solutions that are required, particularly in the face of, of a crisis, um, just aren't, the capacity for that just isn't there. And so I think your starting point, and your starting point for any kind of, you know, I guess, resilient political system is that sense of sol so solidarity and that sense of belonging together. So I would say, in some ways, that's the foundational element, and it's really, really important. I think what we saw in Taiwan was, uh, is a sort of version, um, uh, a view into what a 21st century 
democracy should look like. So some of the things that they do is is sort of massive, you know, crowdsourcing campaigns around what kind of policies they should be considering, for example. Um, they also operate with a sort of an extraordinary transparency in which, you know, the premier has all their their their, their cabinet meetings are um, televised or put online and anybody can watch them at any time, any of their proceedings. Um, there's no sort of closed door type sessions. So it's a kind of radical transparency that breeds a kind of trust that I think is uh, is you know notably necessary in a moment where again as Ben points out we're rife with conspiracy theory we don't know who to trust the sources of information are all contradicting each other um, and so when you see you know it's the kind of behavior we need to see modeled by our our leaders in order for there to be trust in the system so I think there are some things that um, you know that that governments can do to operate differently I think that uh, certainly engendering a sense of social solidarity is really important. But I think as we evolve into this next stage, you know, another very critical piece of this is as you, if we are to extend to the state the ability to, say, surveil everybody, which we know there's the capability and the capacity to do, right, just by looking at what's happened in China, and that um, that may be the road to our quote unquote freedom, which is a really strange thing to say because surveillance in exchange for freedom, um, you know, means we, we, we don't get freedom at all because when we're being surveilled, we're behaving differently. It's hard to argue that we're free when we're being surveilled all the time. So, but in any case, these are the tools they're talking about implementing. And if you're going to grant that kind of power to the state, you have to also expand the institutional capacity for the people to oversee the use of that power and to be a check on that power. And right now, I don't have faith that the institutions that we have for public engagement are strong enough to really hold government to account if we're going to grant it that kind of power. So I do see these tools as maybe necessary in this moment, probably inevitable at some point in our in our future. Uh, but but we do have to adapt our model of democracy um, if we're going to utilize them. And I think the sense of urgency to figure out how to do that pretty quickly is upon us. Thanks, Dawn. Um, look, I mean, there's a lot to, to dig into there. But uh, Ben, I'm going to turn to you now, if I may. Um, so, you know, there is the question of the institutions of, uh, of democracy themselves and how they can be updated to, to make them more uh, in line to 21st century society and values and technology. I think there's also the, uh, uh, when we come to the issue of surveillance, there's also, and, and data, the data economy, there's also the dilemma about the relative power of the institutions of government uh, and uh, the tech companies themselves. Obviously, you know, on the uh, surveillance issue, Apple and Google have offered a kind of solution in, in which most of the information, the data will be held in their hands. So I wonder if you could sort of reflect both on the question of what, you know, like how could we adapt the institutions of, of governance and democracy to be responsive to the, the values of 21st century society, but also what we should think about in terms of uh, the way in which we respond to the surveillance economy and, and the relative power between private uh, companies that hold our data and institutions uh, of democracy that govern our lives. There's nothing like a crisis to put a big bright spotlight on your values and see just how dearly you hold them. And on this question, I think it's about trust and freedom. So, you know, everybody reads in the paper every day, the only way we can come out of lockdown is if we have a comprehensive ability 
to do contact tracing. That is to trace the personal interactions of everybody who's diagnosed with coronavirus in order so that they can be isolated and we can stop the spread of this terrible disease across our communities. But to do effective contact tracing, you need really robust surveillance. And it, it, there, there you get into questions of trust and freedom. So if you're in an authoritarian state, the problem of contact tracing is an easy one because the government automatically has access to all telecommunications records. They can force everybody to stay in their homes. They can, they can demand that you turn over your mobile phone and put whatever technology they want on it and, and keep track of you everywhere you go. And that is just the, the price of living in that society. In that sense, uh, trust doesn't come into the, into the picture. Freedom doesn't come into the picture. It's, it's a, there's no choice in the matter. In democracies, that's a much more difficult question. And we have to decide who do we trust to surveil us to the point that they know which other people we've interacted with on a daily basis so that they can alert those people if we are diagnosed with the virus or if they can alert us if people we've been in contact with are in, in, in contact or have been diagnosed with the virus. So we're reticent to give that power to the state. The state has that kind of control. They can surveil us uh, within, within two meters everywhere we go all day long. That raises all kinds of privacy issues. On the other hand, you've got Google and Apple who together uh, have 95% of the mobile phone market, which means they have a tracking device in the pocket of virtually every adult in our society, and most teenagers too. They've stood up and said, look, uh, we actually have the power to surveil you and to tell you which other people you've come in contact with within two meters over the last day or the last two weeks. And we could put that to work for the society. Do you want us to do it? And, you know, that's a big question where, on the one hand, we desperately need that kind of service. And on the other hand, we're granting and trusting to give people an awful lot of power over us that we may not want them to hold for very long. So I would say our, our key task there is to figure out if we're going to do that, how do we condition that kind of power and that kind of grant of authority either to the private sector or to the government such that it can be walked back when the crisis is over and that there's sufficient transparency on the operation of that power that we're sure that it has been walked back when it should be? Thanks, Ben. And I, I might come back to you on that uh, a little later, if I may. But, Adrian, you wrote a recent piece um, in Foreign Affairs magazine where you set out basically how you thought or some of the sort of big philosophical questions that we should think about as we try and navigate the trilemma between public health, the recovery uh, of the economy, um, and individual privacy and democracy. Maybe you can speak a little bit to that. We're going to face a lot of um, um, dilemma, that's for sure. What should we be looking for? Uh, I think there are different layers of answer. One is whatever the solution, the technical solution is decided, we have to um, seek immediate guarantees, um, which means that any arrangement for possible surveillance must be reversible, it must be strictly proportionate, it must be fully transparent. And this means a lot of things. That mean, for instance, that the process for the removal must be defined right now to ensure that they do not outlive the uh, emergency. This uh, leads us to define what are the criteria for expiration. What does it mean that the crisis is over? Is it that the uh, ICU uh, beds are not under stress? Is it that the vaccine is, uh, the, uh, vaccine is um, uh, discovered? Is it that the virus is gone? And then there's a principle of uh, data minimization. That the usefulness of each piece of data should be strictly demonstrated. Um, 
This should also mean that we, should, we will absolutely want to avoid repurposing part of this data to other uh, ends. Um, but the data that will be collected might be invaluable for other purposes, including for the common good, for uh, improving public transportation, healthcare uh, infrastructure, whatever. I think that it, it's a matter of public trust to say that um, the justification for collecting this data in the first place were not um, improving even public services, but it was fighting the pandemic, and we should stick to this. But beyond all these technical uh, guarantee that we should seek. I think that's what the crisis reveal is that we do not have a well-functioning framework for thinking and defending our digital rights within the broader societal context. Just let me give you an example. I think that a few of us will fear that the freedoms of movement or assembly could remain permanently restricted when the crisis is over. Why? Because there's a protective framework that exists in the case of civil liberty that is unquestioned and that we know more or less how to deal with state of emergency. We know how to strike a balance between individual rights, public necessity, and so on. And we absolutely don't have the same certainty for our digital rights. This means that the, all the text, the norm, the institution that underpin democracy function very clumsily in the digital world. I think that this should be a matter of concern, and this is really telling that an important piece of the democratic edifice is missing here. The, the, the credit should be a real opportunity to um, uh, have this conversation. Uh, if I can just uh, uh, um, pile up on uh, something that uh, Ben said about the uh, power balance between a tech and government. I think that on, on a more technical um, uh, and, and anecdotal point, what we're seeing with Google and Apple is, is also very telling. There is a huge debate about the um, uh, centralized versus decentralized uh, solution for contact tracing, you know, that uh, Europe has two different groups exploring uh, proximity tracing on different bases. And what happened is that the big tech clearly choose their protocol without any public discussion or deliberation, and they are imposing that to all the public authorities, saying that uh, their technology will be banned for use for, uh, by authorities that do not comply to the guideline. And that makes many uh, other actors cringe, you know, that the French government is uh, asking them to change the ability to use background Bluetooth usage uh, for the application that they are developing to function. There are a group of um, researchers from uh, MIT that are developing another solution based on a totally different protocol that uses a Wi-Fi and GPS location instead of Bluetooth because they say that Bluetooth is not reliable and that it has a lot of security issues. But the point is that no technical solution is neutral, never. They all embed choice, they all embed some kind of trade-off between efficiency, privacy, or the consideration. This is a very fine line. And we don't necessarily want to presume that the big tech have the balance right without any deliberation. Should you really believe that, that, that they are better champions of privacy that anyone else and, uh, allows them to set the standard quite unilaterally? But this is what's happening right now. Thanks, Adrian. Look, I mean, I, I, I think that's a, a very fair point to raise. I mean, um, and, you know, you argue that, one, we need a digital bill of rights, um, and, and two, that we that we need to to make sure, in some ways, I guess, in your last comment, that there's broader engagement um, around uh, around how those rights and uh, are administered. That they can't just be decided uh, what we have access to and the data we understand cannot just be decided by big tech. Um, ben, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about. You know, is it time for a digital bill of rights? If so, you know, are there uh, are there what what are the kind of solutions that are open and available to us to achieve that? I think the short answer is yes. It is time for a digital bill of rights. You know, 
you think about where we started this conversation talking about information warfare around which states are trying to control the narrative about coronavirus and its its implications for geopolitics. And we're talking about Apple and Google basically staring down nation states and saying, if you want to use our commercial surveillance platforms, you're going to have to play by our rules and the governments sort of have to follow along, which is quite extraordinary when you think about it. Um, what we see here are two prominent examples of how giant technology companies, globe-spanning giant technology companies, dominate information markets in the modern world. And no nation state has laws that are competent to uh, steer the power of that industry in a direction that is in alignment with democratic values. And arguably, no state could do it on its own, that this has to be a multilateral uh, project where we have many different governments act, enacting similar laws at the same time in the same spirit, customized to suit local legal jurisdictions, but which are intending to produce the same result, to persuade these companies that it is in their commercial interest to go ahead and change the way they do business in order to accommodate new law that serves democracy rather than uh, the corporate bottom line. You know, this has got to be the case on how, how, what responsibilities these companies have for controlling disinformation. It has to be the case for, for how they handle surveillance and the use of, of, of private information and data. It has to be the case on, on, on issues like taxation. Let's not forget that these same companies are, are among the only commercial ventures on the planet that are making money in this global uh, economic catastrophe that's accompanied the pandemic. So we have lots of challenges with the technology industry at the center. We have almost no modernized legal structures to deal with it. And I think a, a, a digital bill of rights is, is a good frame to set out as a North Star for us to pursue uh, as, as publics and as governments. Thanks, Ben. I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree more with you on the fact that uh, many of these companies now are, you know, benefiting immensely from the crisis through no innovation of their own. Um, and in my own personal view, the case for a windfall tax uh, on these companies grows uh, every day. But uh, let's leave that issue aside. Dawn, um, on the Digital Bill of Rights, what's your feeling on this uh, and what do you feel we could do to, to, to move that forward to sort of rebalance the, the relationship between democracy, the big tech companies uh, and uh, the public at large? I would echo what Ben said in that, that however we approach this, it does need to be, you know, um, a sort of multilateral policy that's adopted, like the Declaration on Human Rights was, right? We need a digital bill of rights for humans that's grounded in, a, I mean, a, a bill, bill of rights that is grounded in a sort of human rights doctrine. Um, and I think it means, you know, um, some sort of ownership or control over our data in some way. I think our, you know, ability to be forgotten and our, you know, and, and maintain our privacy, um, um, some expectation that will there will be a level of transparency uh, around how our data is used and so on and so forth. So I do think um, these are all really uh, important things and things that I think um, are, you know, 21st century solutions. 
for far too long, not only have they not been taxed and they haven't been regulated, they've, they've sort of operated and grown in a, a very lawless space, basically. And so the culture there, obviously, is going to maintain its you know resistance to any kind of legal framework, any kind of taxation, and so on. Um, uh, the problem is, in my mind, we've, we've allowed that to go on far too long. Um, and it's, it's a situation where they really have become... Uh, a very many-headed beast. So I do think the challenge we've set up for set up for ourselves because we've waited so long, um, and it's been this sort of insidious, um, opaque uh, process um, that we kind of missed seeing come as fast as it has come. It's been slow enough for us to miss uh, on a, a large societal scale and for most policymakers to miss the threat that um, the impending threat that it was posing as it grew. I think in a way the luxury of the moment we're in is that it is, you know, it does shine a very bright light on the urgency of this situation um, and how we can't, uh, we're not going to, I guess, um, hopefully fall into the same trap of, of not seeing this coming, right? There's a sense of urgency. There's a bright spotlight on what's at stake. Um, uh, and, and so I get, think that gives us a, a clarity and, and focuses the mind in a way uh, that we may be able to take on this challenge and really wrestle with it in a way that opens the door to things like a digital bill of rights, right? Really takes, we really get to take this on. My fear is, of course, that, um, as political and social unrest rises because, you know, people are at home and they want to get back to normal life, there's going to be a lot of pressure on policymakers to make something happen. And, you know, the, the um, platforms are there with ready-made tools, right? And so the solution's right there. And all you have to do is give us the word and we'll go out and do it. And then thereby we've just massively expanded their power for uh, surveillance um, and asked for nothing in exchange. Um, and the pressure to do that, I think, will be there. Our collective will is is certain to, to protect our privacy has been ebbing for years. And I think it will, um, uh, in this moment, potentially just cave in. We've already shown that we've, uh, on a societal level, been willing to give up our privacy um, uh, and I think in many ways our rights in uh, for minor conveniences, right? And and, and petty entertainments. Um, it hasn't, it's been less and less important to us over time. So when you, you know, add to that our limitation on our movement, I think we'll definitely be willing to do that on a societal level. And there'll be a lot of pressure on governments to let it happen. So I think we do have to think very carefully about what are the stepping stones towards a digital bill of rights and what are the things we need to put in place right now uh, to make sure that that, you know, to, to not make that future even more remote um, than it already is and the task ahead of us even uh, a steeper climb. Thanks, Dawn. Um, uh, in some ways, part of what you said is rather depressing that we've given up our privacy for so little already that, um, you know, echoing Yuval Noel Hari, you know, you say that if it comes to the issue of health, uh, then, and, and the freedom of movement, then we'll absolutely give all the cards over to the tech companies to, uh, to manage that. So that's a depressing thought. What I would like to turn to now as a last comment from each of you is an optimistic thought. Um, you know, in every crisis, there is an opportunity. Uh, is this an opportunity to rebalance technology and democracy or to renew our democratic institutions? Uh, can each of you give us a hopeful thought about what we might 
be able to achieve moving forward if we take this crisis as an opportunity to renew democracy? And Dawn, I will start with you. I've personally been studying this question of how do we reform democracy to make it a 21st century um, set of institutions uh, for a long time. And I think that, you know, as crises are always a threat and, and an opportunity, I do think this is an opportune moment to start thinking very deeply about how we do that. I think that the competition that we're seeing playing out on a global scale, uh, you know, kind of between every government, um, gives us a sort of comprehensive test of what's working and what's not working. And, and I think that we'll be able to see where governments have managed to be resilient and preserve their values uh, in the face of, of this crisis. So I'm pretty optimistic that we will come out the other side of this with a clearer idea of the kinds of reforms that's needed in order to build resilient 21st century democracy. Um, and I think the appetite for reform as we recover and the opportunity to change things, because I think in, in many ways, so much will be broken at that point, um, will be that much higher. So I'm, I'm quite optimistic. I think in, in moments of, of, you know, uh, of tragedy and sometimes when things seem darkest, it is, uh, um, it, it does precede uh, moments of great change um, and, and rapid social, political, and economic evolution in a direction that we were inevitably going to go anyway. This has just accelerated it. Um, so I am kind of optimistic. It's a dark moment, but I think we have an opportunity to start changing things um, in ways that are so necessary and, and have been for, for decades. Um, we've been watching sort of a slow institutional decline as the foundations of the institutions we relied on in the 20th century just started to crumble under the pressure of a very different, dynamic, faster-paced, networked uh, society that we're living in. Um, and we can't ignore that anymore. And this is the moment to start recognizing that and reckoning with it and, and putting in place the changes that are absolutely necessary to manage a 21st century society. Thanks, Dawn. Uh, Adrian, give us something to be optimistic about. I think that we, we don't know the extent of the crisis yet, really. Um, so it, it's kind of a matter of faith to be optimistic or pessimistic on that, on, uh, at that point. But I, I tend to agree that these... Uh, this will show all the weaknesses of um, the uh, actual system of the uh, democratic institution, of the uh, social media platform, of everything. Um, and so if we handle this right, this could also lead to more resilience of the system. Because um, it, it's a, it's a um, huge stress test. Um, the question, I think, the fundamental question is, uh, will we be trying to do that uh, each on our uh, country, each on our side, each on our sector, or we would be trying to do this together. Um, all democracies will face the same question, basically. Um, and among this question, uh, the uh, question about the impact of technology in society will be, for better or worse, one of the um, foreseeable consequences of the crisis. Um, so how do we organize um, kind of a coalition of uh, like-minded policymaker, expert, public advocacy group, concert, cooperation, um, because of this crisis to show that we are uh, clear-eyed on the risks um, and that we are committed to balance, the, to strike the right balance between individual freedom, institutional power uh, for the future. There is an opportunity to do that. This will, uh, it, it, well, it will need a lot of work. It will not be obvious to the need, but uh, if we uh, come together, we can. Thanks, Adrian. I mean, I, I sort of agree with you just as this 
uh, crisis has exposed the frailties of some of our institutions. It it it, uh, it, it is also a, a call to action for many of us to do more. Uh, ben, I'm going to give the final word of optimism, or hopefully the final optimistic message will come from you. Thanks. Uh, glad to bring it home. Uh, I'll make three points quickly. One, we talked about how the coronavirus pandemic has really demonstrated to anybody who was missing it before how powerful the technology companies have become and how unconstrained and unaccountable they are, whether it's flowing disinformation that they can't manage, whether it's their ability to surveil us down to the meter of where we go all day long uh, in, in a completely intransparent and unaccountable way, or it is the fact that they've become you know, un almost unstoppable monopolies that they continue to operate and make money even as the rest of the economy is shut down. You know, having uh, a public will to do something about that, I think, is a positive. In a second adjacent vein, I would say, you know, we've watched in the last 20 years as the tech industry has gradually uh, shifted the market of information production and the traditional business of public service journalism has, has, has cratered and is really struggling to survive. And I think we've been as democratic societies a little blasé about that. And now we're seeing the consequences. You know, we're in a pandemic. Everybody needs to know not just what's happening, but what's happening in their local community. And a lot of us turn around and find that there's not a lot of local journalism there anymore. There's no money for it. There's there, And we've allowed those institutions to, to atrophy and, and in many cases to die. I, I think this could be a moment to do something about that and to be inspired about the importance of, of news and information for democracy. And finally, and, and most broadly, I hope this is a time when we can begin to put down our swords of, of identity politics and and realize that we're all part of the same community, that you know your neighbors are not a part of this political party or that political party, they're your neighbors. And first and foremost, we have a duty to one another as a community, as, as a city, as a country, as a, as a globe to do right by, by human beings. And, and I think that there are moments like that that come along in, in our history where we've come together and really done things that, that mattered for people and, and looked past those things that have divided us in the past. And I, and I hope that this is one of those moments. The idea that we are all part of a shared community and that we have a common interest in moving beyond this and to come together is, I think, a very optimistic note on which to leave this. Ben, Dawn and Adrian, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your insights. We look forward to continuing to follow your respective work and projects. And to our listeners, we hope you'll continue to join us at The Recovery Project for more podcasts, live stream discussions, research and analysis on the road to recovery from COVID-19. All of these are available at recoveryproject.org. On behalf of all of us at The Recovery Project, our Partners Canada 2020, the Institute for Fiscal Studies and Democracy, and of course, Global Progress, we thank you for listening. Stay safe. <laughs>